to be with all of you today. Uh, we are having our lunch on the lawn celebrations, which we always enjoy and always... Liz, one of these days I'm going to remember. Kickstart, our fourth and fifth graders. Get a... One, one of these days I will remember, I swear it. I... You guys are just going to keep me honest, and that's all right. So... But not only is it a, a special morning today because we are having our lunch on the lawn, um, but we are also uh, going to be installing Paul Wilkin as an elder here at Livingstone's Church. And uh, I shared with you a few weeks back uh, about our intention to and, and our uh, desire to have Paul join our eldership here uh, at Livingstone's. And, and, and I asked for your help. I said, if, if any of you know any reason why Paul should not serve as an elder, for you to come let us know, for you to share anything you wanted with us, especially because Paul was gone on that Sunday, and so like I, I implored you, is there anything, like I, I, I shared with Paul's family this morning, almost like, like Festivus, the airing of grievances, if there's any grievances that need to be aired, please do so. Well, I, I want you to know that we heard nothing back. Um, but good things about Paul, which can only mean one of two things. Either all of Paul's dirty laundry is public knowledge, and so there was nothing new to be added to the conversation that we already knew all the dirt there is to know about Paul, or that Paul's reputation is one that is commendable, and that he is an excellent candidate for eldership. In, in 1 Timothy, Paul, the Apostle Paul talks about an elder needing to have a good reputation, with those both inside the church and out, for those that he is called to serve. And in Proverbs 22 talks about that a, that a good name is greater, is more desirable than great riches. And Paul, Paul definitely meets those, those standards. I'm going to invite Paul, would you come join us up on the stage? And I'm going to invite our other elders who are in attendance. Uh, Chuck, would you come join us? Stephen, would you come on up here? Lowell is, is traveling this week um, and could not join us for this installation, but serving as, as an elder, as a, as a shepherd, as an overseer, it's, it's a high calling. And it is a calling. It, it is very much a, a calling. It, it's a calling to, to lead. It's a calling to serve. It's a calling to pray. It's a calling to encourage. It's, encur it's a calling to stand in the gap for those here in our church family. And, and in Paul, like, we, we have a man here who not only is, is a man of integrity, not only does he love our church and love our community, not only is he a Packers fan, which is a great bonus. I, that, that might have tipped the scales for you. I'm, I'm just being honest. But he's a friend. And, and he really has a heart of a servant, truly has the heart of God, and, and I'm really excited about this, Paul. And so, uh, Chuck, I asked if, if Chuck would share just a few words and pray over Paul, and then Paul asked if he could just share a few words with, uh, with the church this morning as well. So. My daughter, Sarah, has made two great decisions in her life. In <laughs> Only second, two. In second, well, there might be others. Okay. <laughs> but in second place is to give her father Panera Bread gift cards for every special occasion. But the number one is to bring Paul into our family. For more than a quarter of a century now, this guy next to me has been 
like a son. Both his parents are here this morning, and I'm grateful to them for the man that they raised. This is a man of great integrity, a great spiritual uh, asset to this congregation, and one who loves the Lord. It's been a joy over the years to watch him grow spiritually, and now I have had the pleasure of sitting in his small group and being instructed by him and being challenged by him, and I couldn't be more proud this morning that as the oldest, not by much, Stephen, but the oldest elder. <laughs> we're in a, both in our 70s now. But to pass the torch on to the next generation coming up behind, and Paul is a great representative of that next generation coming up. And so we look forward to working with him through the years, however many we got left. And uh, I pray that God will bless Paul with many years of service here in this congregation because he truly loves it. So I'm going to ask you to bow with me now as we go to God in prayer. Holy God, our Father in heaven, Father, I am so thankful for Paul, for the growth that we have seen through the years, and for his willingness and love to accept this responsibility to shepherd in this congregation. And I pray, Father, that all those who hear this and all those who can't be with us but will be here soon, that they'll realize what a treasure we have in this young man and that you will bless him with a long and healthy life. I pray, Father, that you, as you have blessed him with wisdom, that you will increase that wisdom and increase his spirituality as he continues to age and grow older and lead in this church, Father. We thank you for his commitment, for his love for you, and I pray your richest blessings upon him and his family and your family here in this place. I pray this in the name of your Holy Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Um, I thought I knew what I was going to say when I came up here. And everything kind of went out the window. My mom showed up a little before service. I had no idea she was going to be here. My sister's here from Kentucky and my brother-in-law. I haven't had this much family in here since I was married here <laughs> 27 years ago. It's, uh, it truly is a blessing. Um, I remember the first time I came through those doors, it was probably 93-ish, and Sarah brought me in here. And let's just say I did not grow up with a, a real strong church background. I had no idea what I was walking into. And I remember we picked up our, they had bins of hand fans back there because there was no air conditioning. <laughs> and Sarah actually was fanning me. She was so nice. She would not fan me today, I don't think. <laughs> but she was fanning me. She wanted me to uh, understand church and understand love and, and the things that went on here. And I just remember thinking to myself, because my, my experience with church was on television. And of course, if you're a child of the 80s, church on television was absolutely awful. <laughs> and so it was so different. I got to see a community of people really coming together and loving each other and, and, and standing by each other and helping them through the hard times and being there for them in the good times and just doing life together. And that's really kind of 
my thought around this, I, I was listening to a podcast, and if you don't listen to this podcast, it's called The Holy Post. I highly recommend it. Um, they were talking about church, and in America, there's kind of four definitions of church. There's one, the building. This building has hosted some of the most fun, exciting, terrifying times of my life, and some of the saddest and heartbreaking times of my life. So where I know the church is not the building, that definition fits with me because this old building has really meant a lot to me. The second definition of church is kind of the organization, the part of the church that, that is running, like especially in America, right, there's all of these legal things that you have to do and decisions you have to make and things you have to do and to be honest with you, I didn't know really much about that until I started hanging out with the elders and the, and the team to find out what that's like. And there's more work there than you would ever really imagine and think that needs to happen to keep these doors open, to keep this service going, to keep things active. And so where I hate to think of church as an organization, it's an organization and it's one that I'll be proud to serve in and to help make decisions on. The third is kind of the church around the world. The church, there's a, the third one actually comes next is community, but I'm gonna save that for last. Um, but the church around the world, and just knowing that churches are different everywhere you go. This church is different than the church down the road, up the street. It's different than the one in South America that's different than the one in Africa and in China and and so it's, it's a group of people that are looking to, to Jesus to try to find answers, and we're trying to find answers, and, and we're not coming to the same conclusions on all of those things. But it's, it's a piece of the world that tries to unite in Christ. And that one's still pretty abstract to me. But the part that really is the heartbeat is the community of believers that are right here in front of me today. The believers that are here that have prayed, have suffered, have lived life together, and just share our burdens. And, and it never dawned on me when the name of this congregation changed from the Damar Avenue Church of Christ to the Livingstones Church, how I would feel about living stones and what I've learned about living stones. I shared a little bit of that last week when I was talking before communion and really the Holy Spirit living in us is the temple of God now. And we are all putting that on display and we're all a part of it. And Jesus is just that cornerstone. He's the part that holds us all together, that we focus on, that we, that we look to for guidance and we know if we want to feel God, I, I don't know how often you do this. I often think, God, could you just give me a hug? Like, for real, God, just reach down and give me a hug. And it's just not how it works. When you read in the Bible, the Spirit of God is a very powerful force. It's a dangerous force. It's a loving and gracious and amazing force. But it doesn't work that way. God's not going to pick me up and give me a hug. But when I come through those doors and I come in here and I see all of these people and all the support and love, that's God's hug. 
that's how he makes me feel when I stand up here and I get to see all of you. And I know I don't know all of you personally. I hope I get to know you more and more as we continue to do the work on the South Side. I wore my favorite LSC shirt. It's the one that says causing trouble since 2006 on the South Side. I just love this place. And just to close things out, just my thoughts around, as I mentioned, this is the first time I've had this much family here since my wedding. Another thing that's in common with this day is I remember standing just over, it's probably over here, and seeing Sarah walking down the aisle and Chuck is leading her down. And just in my head, me thinking, I'm not worthy. I'm gonna mess this up. I don't know what's gonna happen next. I really feel that right now too. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> all the kind words that Pat and Chuck have said, I don't know if I'm that, but what I can tell you is, is that I do love this place and I will continue to serve in this place as long as you'll let me. And uh, I think that's all I wanted to say. Thank you and God bless you all. I love you, man. Let me give you a hug. If, if you don't know Paul, he's a, he's a special, special man. You, you go out of your way to just congratulate him. Let him know that you, you love and appreciate him uh, in our lunch on the lawn that we have today. So um, I, I am going to... Uh, but before we get into our message, we're going to just have, just take a moment to uh, collect our morning tithes and offerings as well. And so uh, it, it, all, and you guys have heard us talk about this and, and share this, that your giving allows us to do ministry here on, on the South Side, allows us to do things like lunch on the lawn, allows us to go to Miami Hills for our popsicles at the playground, allows us to, to partner with other ministries here. And, and what you, your faithfulness in giving allows us to continue to do ministry here, and I just want to thank you for that. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite our ushers to come forward. I'm going to pray, and they're going to receive our, our morning tithes and offerings, and we're going to get into our message today. So, Lord, we are so grateful and thankful, God, for your love. God, thank you for your provision. Thank you for this church, the way that you serve, the way that you protect, the way that you provide for us, Lord. And it is a, it's an honor, it's a privilege to give back just a, a small portion of what you've already given to us, Lord. We, we freely give it back to you, Lord, asking you to, to grow and to expand your kingdom through your people's generosity and faithfulness, Lord. We just pray your blessings upon this offering in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys can go ahead and pass the baskets along. And, and as they are doing that, we are in a series that we have been calling Resilient and, and really talking about, like, how do we restore our, our weary souls? We've been having, taking a look at all, right, all the things that we've gone through, all the things that we've encountered and dealt with, all the things that life has thrown our way over these last number of years, and just how so many of us just are feeling worn out, worn down, stretched thin. And what can we do? What can we do as, as a church body to restore our, our weary souls. And I, I, as throughout this series, I've shared a definition with you, and I want to share it right now at the very beginning. It's the definition of the word apocalypse. And, it, and the, the literal definition is, is to uncover, to reveal, to lay bare. And as I've stated in this series, this, this season that we've walked through has really uncovered, it's revealed and it's laid bare a lot of things in our lives, a lot of things in our society, a lot of things within the church as well. 
And, and one, of the, one of the main things that we talked about last Sunday, that if we want to restore our weary souls in, in this season, it is needing to have lingering communion with God and, and with others. It's one of the reasons we're doing our lunches on the lawn. And, and if you didn't bring anything, by all means, please stay. Like, let, allow us to, to serve you. Just be a part. Just hang out for a, a while. And, but, but it's one of the key reasons why we do what we do. Now, I, I don't know if any of you ever watched the front line on, on PBS, but there, there was a, a, a fascinating, absolutely fascinating episode of Frontline um, that, that I actually saw on YouTube. I didn't see it live, but it was taking a look at solitary confinement in prisons here in America. And, and really what, what solitary confinement does to the inmates that, that find themselves locked in a cell for 23 hours a day with no interaction with, with other human beings and, and just how devastating it is for so many of them. Like that some guys end up resorting to, to hurting themselves and sometimes extremely severely maiming themselves in, in ways, in, in, just, it, it's in some ways just as a demonstration of control, in some ways just to be able to get out of their cell, to be able to have some kind of human contact, even if it's in a, in a very uh, destructive manner. And, and it, was, it was really so eye-opening just about what isolation does to our mental health. That when, now, obviously, we're, you know, through COVID, and like we're, we don't live in a, in, a, in a cell that we're locked in 23 hours a day. But isolation really wreaks havoc on our mental health. And, and in, in this episode of Frontline, they interviewed a prison warden. They interviewed different psychologists and psychiatrists that work with some of the inmates. And, and there was something that, that uh, the warden, in the warden's interview that really just resonated with me because there was something that I've been thinking a lot about just as far as us as, as a church body and what God is doing here and around us. Now, just to kind of set this up, the, the warden, he's actually a proponent of trying to minimize, to trying to reduce the number of inmates that find themselves in solitary confinement, reducing the number of, uh, not, not just the number of them, but the amount of time that they spend in solitary confinement. And, and he, he said this, he said, Mr. Brulette, he was one of the guys that found himself in solitary. Mr. Brulette was engaged in some very, very serious behavior while he was in general population. So without a doubt, it was the right place for him. Sometimes it's necessary. He would say, all right, like, I don't like this idea of solitary confinement. I don't like this idea of us putting somebody in a cell by themselves, isolating them from everybody else. But sometimes we don't have a choice. Sometimes it's necessary. So without a doubt, it was the right place for him. Sometimes it's necessary. There are a lot of gray areas in the decisions we make. There is no exact science to any one of these guys. We have to try and figure it out as we move along. And I, and I believe that's kind of where we are as, as a church. That's kind of where we are as a society right now. That, that for, for complex, complicated problems, we often would love to have simple answers, simple solutions. But for the most part... There are no simple answers. There are no simple solutions. Like we often want a, a magic bullet that's going to take care of the issues that we face, the issues that we face as, as individuals, as families, as a society. But the magic bullet doesn't exist. I, I, was, I was listening to a, a podcast recently. It was called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It, it's a fantastic uh, listen, I would highly encourage uh, all of you to, to listen to that podcast. And, and it really kind of traces 
the, this megachurch out in Seattle and their, their meteoric rise and obviously the, the devastating fall that happened and, and the fallout and all that's taken place since then. And, and in, in, the, in the course of, of one of these episodes of, of the rise and fall of Mars Hill, they, there's an interview with Dr. Russell Moore, which, which was a, a fascinating interview. If you're not familiar with who Dr. Moore is, um, he is an American theologian. He was the former president of uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He used to um, work for the Southern Baptist Convention. He currently works at Christianity Today. And in talking about the issues that the church faces right now, he said this. He said, people often want a solution as large scale as the problem, but that's rarely the case. Small solutions are needed, but small solutions often seem inadequate. These small solutions, they don't satisfy, and it doesn't feel like things are being fixed right away. The real solutions to the troubles that we face, talk about the, the troubles of the church at large, that we face are probably going to be small and personal and local and generational and gradually unfolding. I, I, I was so moved by this interview, and, and I'm going to reference it a little bit more later. I was doing some yard work outside in the backyard, and I literally stopped, and I, and I, I just cried in, in my backyard because so much of what was being described is what I, what I feel like God is stirring inside of me for, for what God wants us to be as, as the church body, what God wa wants for, for each one of us. And, and, and because, I, I'll, I'll, say, I'll say it like this, in, his, in the way he was articulating what the body of Christ could be, what the body of Christ should be, I thought, no, no, this is it. Like, he, he's, he's putting into words these things that I've just had percolating inside of me. And, and, but, in, but in seeking solutions, in seeking solutions for how we move forward, in seeking how we find healing and rejuvenation for our souls, there, there's a concept that that we need to talk about first before we get there that seems obvious, but oftentimes is a trap that we find ourselves in as we try to move forward in our own lives. And it's this idea that tired decision makers equal dangerous decisions. Tired decision makers equal dangerous decisions. This last week, I took my son... Josiah, up to Oshkosh, Wisconsin, to the EAA Air Venture. It's the, the nation's largest air show. Like last year, there were 600,000 people that came to this small little town in, in Wisconsin. And, and it, it was an amazing time. We got to see like old World War II warbirds, got to see like modern military aircraft, homemade, homemade uh, airplanes that, that were made, helicopters, I mean, you name it, Josiah got to sit in the cockpit of an awful lot of these, and it was an amazing time. But one of the things that they talked about in, in some of the different breakouts in the booths there was this idea of, of safety, safety when it comes to aircraft, because one of the biggest safety issues with planes, just like with automobiles, is people operating them when they're fatigued, when they're tired, when they're exhausted. That, uh, just a couple years ago, there was a, an incident at San Francisco International Airport where there was a, a, an Aeromexico plane that was coming in, and they lined up on the wrong runway. And so they, they literally came within about 50 feet of another plane that was taxiing, getting ready to take off because they lined up on the wrong, one, on the wrong runway. runway. Wrong. Say wrong. I'm not even going to try it. <laughs> and... 
But so often, the, the mistakes that are made in the air, the mistakes that are made as, as we're driving, often can be attributed to exhaustion, can be attributed to fatigue, being tired. And, and, and a phrase that we talked about last week that I wanted to bring up again today is this idea that, that we want things to be good again. We, we have this, this longing inside of us for things to be right, for things to be good once again. And oftentimes, we, we go out of our way to try to make things right. We, we, try, to, we try to fix the issues that are going on in, in our life, and rightfully so. We, we ought to try to fix and take care of those issues. But often in our attempts to make things good again, in our attempts to try to make things right, it's easy for us to, to take detours, to find shortcuts al- along the way. And when it comes to the things of God, when it comes to, to filling our reserves, to filling our tanks, to being resilient, I, and I want to, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down, there are no shortcuts. There are no shortcuts when it comes to the things of God. I, if, if you could put the picture up on the screen, this was a, a picture that I, that I took a couple years ago that our family and I, we drove to Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado. And one of the trails we walked on had this here. And I, and I took this picture because I wanted to remind myself of this idea. Shortcuts prohibited. As, as I related, or as I stated earlier with the interview with Dr. Moore, with the problems that we face as, as a church, as a people, and as a society, the solutions that, that, are, off the, that are really going to be effective for us tend to be small. They're, they're going to be small things that we do and do well. And, but the, the sad reality is that often those small things feel inadequate. It doesn't feel like a, real, a true answer to these giant problems that we face. Investing in, in relationships with people, it takes time. It, there, there are no shortcuts. There are no shortcuts to it. It's hard. It, it takes investment. If we're going to invest and fill our tanks and, and connect with God, it takes time. There are no shortcuts to it. Per, pursuing lingering communion with God, lingering communion with other people. There aren't shortcuts to get there. It requires our investment. It requires our time to do so. And, and one of the greatest examples I could think of as it relates to this idea of, of pursuing shortcuts comes from the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15. I'm going to read just a few verses to you from it. It says, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set out for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. And one of the things that that I find interesting about this, this parable that Jesus tells is that the younger son essentially was trying to take a shortcut. He didn't want to wait for his inheritance. He didn't want to wait like for, for his father to pass on, for his father to pass on what was due to him or what he thought was due to him. He wanted to shortcut the, short-circuit the, the process. He wanted it now. And his impatience cost him. Like in, in the end, like, and we, we know this, shortcuts oftentimes look appealing. Well, all right, you know, like it, it seems like it could be easier it seems like it could be faster, an easier way for me to achieve the things that I want in life. But, but how many times in my life have I pursued what I thought was a shortcut? 
And it ended up costing me more in the long run, more money, more time, more integrity, more peace of mind than had I not taken it at all. I think we can probably all identify times like that in our lives where we, where we pursued a shortcut and it ended up costing us more in the long run than had we just stayed the course. And so I want to take a, a few moments just to share some thoughts that I believe God wants us to hear this morning, some, some thoughts that, that I think are going to help us become the resilient people, the resilient church that God wants us to be, that he, God has called us to be that we're able to stand when the storms of life come, we're able to stand when, when the shaking happens in our lives. And, and I've, as I've, I've said this before, there is no one-size-fits-all. There, there's no one-size-fits-all, all right, well, just do these things, and hey, you're just going to be great. You're going to be good to go. I wish life worked that way. Most of the time, it doesn't. But these are some things we can try to do, some things we can attempt to put into practice in our lives that will help that will at least help us in, in our journey that we have together. And so the first thing I want to share is this idea that we just need to name the losses. Na- name the losses. Like, I, I know a person, and, and it still makes me smile when, when I think about her, because she, she was the kind of person that, you know, if she was congested, you could hear her coughing. And if you asked her if she was sick, she would say, no, I'm not sick. Jesus has healed me. And, and, like, and I, like, I, I admire her faith. But there's nothing wrong with just admitting, hey, I'm sick. I've got a cold. I, you know, like this, this, you know, I've got a sinus infection, whatever it might be. There, there's nothing wrong with just admitting what's actually, what's actually there. And, and I think with any kind of trauma, with any kind of adversity or tribulation that we find in our lives, we need to name the losses. We need to give ourselves permission to grieve. Let, let's not pretend that we're okay when we're not actually okay. So what are the losses? What are the losses that, that I've faced over these last number of years? What is all the things that we've gone through, all the things that we've, we've dealt with over these last number of years? Writing down, what, what are those losses? What are my fears? What are the sources of, of my anger, of my resentment, of my frustration? of my discouragement. And and I'm just being honest with you, I find this difficult to do at times. Because there's times it feels like, all right, I'm lacking faith. There's times it feels like, all right, God, I'm just complaining about you. In in the grand scheme of things, my problems seem so small to what other people are dealing with, what other people are, are having to walk through by comparison. But I'm convinced more than ever, more than ever, that Jesus wants authenticity, even if it's ugly, rather than us pretending that we have it all together. Jesus wants authenticity, even if it's ugly, rather than us just pretending. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells of, of the tax collector and the Pharisee that were both praying in the synagogue. And the Pharisee, he, he's touting all, all, of his, you know, all of his righteousness. You know, he's got it all together. He's got it figured out. And, and the tax collector gets up in, in the synagogue, and he just says, Father, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus responds. God responds to authenticity. That we would be in a, a community of authentic believers who we may be struggling in this world, but hey, we're going to be real about it. We're not going to pretend. We're not going to, we're not going to ignore those things that are going on right around us. 
but that we can just be real. It, it is okay to name the losses. It is okay to be honest. It's okay to be real. It's okay to be genuine, to be authentic. David did this over and over again as you read through the Psalms. I, I could give you dozens of examples, but just one is in Psalm chapter 6, starting in verse 6, and he says, I am worn out from my groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and I drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Like David didn't pretend he had it all together. He didn't, he didn't pretend like, oh, you know what? Hey, I'm, I'm good. God's got this. No, like he named the losses. He was real. Like he, it doesn't mean that he didn't trust God in the process. He was being genuine. He was being authentic. And, and it's one of the things that I find so appealing about David. Like, we have to acknowledge where we really are, being able to name the losses. And John Eldridge says, and this is actually going to tie into our next point, he says that we honor our emotions by acknowledging them, but we bridle our emotions by keeping them subject to truth. He's saying, all right, we, we can do two things at once. We, we, can, we can be honest with our emotions. We can be honest with, with where we really are. But we keep a bridle in our emotions by keeping them subject to truth, be, being real and honest and transparent, but also not letting our, our emotions rule and reign over us in our lives too. We honor our emotions by acknowledging them, but we bridle our emotions by making them subject to truth. And, and one of the things that we can do to, to build faith, to keep our emotions subject to truth, is by having a daily declaration of faith. And this, this, might seem, this might seem kind of odd, but I want you to follow along with me with this for, for a moment. A daily declaration of faith. Being able to say out loud, this is what I believe. God, this is what I believe. This is what you have to say. We can acknowledge how we're feeling. We can acknowledge that we're struggling. But we can affirm and declare the truth in the middle of that. In the middle of what of what we're feeling in the middle of the angst and, and the feeling stretched thin and worn out. Declarations of, of faith about what does God and his word have to say about me, that I am fearfully and wonderfully made, that I am God's beloved son or beloved daughter, that I'm healed by the blood of Jesus. I am not forsaken. I am not abandoned. I have been made new by the spirit of God living inside of me. I'm chosen I am a royal priesthood. I'm an overcomer by the blood of the Lamb and the word of my testimony. I'm forgiven. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. Like, we, we have to know what is it that God says about me? What, what does he say about us? And maybe it's not how I feel in this moment. But I have to remind myself. Sometimes I just have to verbally say, allow my ears to hear me say, God, I know that you haven't abandoned me. You haven't left me. You haven't forsaken me. Or maybe, maybe it's not just reminding ourselves of what God has to say about us, but maybe it's reminding ourselves of what, about what we believe about God. I, I, this is a, a sad reality that, I, that I've encountered multiple times with people over the years, but it feels like it's accelerated over these last couple years the people that have really been wrestling and really questioning their faith, and some that have walked away from their faith altogether. And maybe part of this daily declaration is affirming out loud, 
this is what I believe. One of the things I've been trying to memorize and trying to incorporate for my own self is just being able to speak the Apostles' Creed. I'm working on memorizing it. And the Apostles' Creed says, We believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, and on the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sat at the right hand of God the Father, from which he will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Like, like in, in some ways, like th- this, this idea, the Apostles' Creed, sums up the essentials of, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The Apostles' Creed sums up, this is what I believe. This is what I believe about who God is, about who Jesus is. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I, I believe in the resurrection of the body. And just a, a side note, uh, just because it, it catches me off guard too, and maybe this is my, my Catholic upbringing, but when it, when it says we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, it's not referring to the Roman Catholic Church. It's Catholic with a, with a small c, which literally means throughout the whole. It, it's, 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 I believe in the church throughout time, in all time, in all place. The unity of the body of Christ. And perhaps saying some of these things out loud, reminding myself, all right, what does God have to say about me? What, what do I believe about who God is? Reminding myself of that in the middle of it allowing my ears to hear these declarations of faith. And, and so I want to close with a, a final thought that's going to harken back to that interview I, I alluded to with Dr. Moore at the very beginning. I pray this kind of ties all of this back together for us. And I was reminded a little bit as I was preparing this week about the story of Lot's wife in Genesis chapter 19. If, if, you're, if you're not familiar with it, God had Lot and his family leave the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. God was going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he, God sent angels to come speak to Lot and his family. said, all right, I want you to leave the cities because there's some terrible things that are going to happen to it. And he said, not only do I want you to leave, I don't even want you to look back. But as they were fleeing Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot's wife looked back and she became, became a pillar of salt. And I'll be honest, I, I don't know exactly what that means. I don't, I don't fully know what it means that he, she became a pillar of salt, but I believe that it illustrates an issue that we face today. That in Genesis 19, 26, where, where it references Lot's wife looking back, it, it's, it's not like a, just a glance over my shoulder, but that idea of looking back, it, it, it denotes to regard, to consider, to long for. Scripture is not crystal clear as to why Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt, but I, but I surmise that it was, it was this regarding, this longing for what was, what was familiar to me. Her desire for, for what she knew, her desire that, that I had control before, and now God is leading me into an area where I don't have control, where I don't know what's going to happen. I don't have all the answers. I'm struggling to trust God with the future because I'm looking back at what was in, in the past. 
The, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was an apocalypse with that, in that same definition that we've been using lately, that it was, a, it was a revealing, it was an uncovering. Things were laid bare, and it didn't turn out well for Lot's wife in the middle of it. And, and my prayer for us is that, that we would not look back longingly, that we would, we would be able to trust God with what he has ahead of us and in front of us. Like, like we can look back at what God has done and be extremely grateful and so thankful for, for what it is that God has done in our lives, what he's done in our church, what he's done in our community. But in the end, we can't ever move forward into what God has for us, into the destiny that God has, if we're looking back longingly. Instead of looking forward to what God has in store for us. A, a few weeks back, I shared with you kind of some inside baseball of, of what happens when pastors get together and when pastors talk, that they, they'll often talk about the ABCs of church. Most of the time when pastors get together, they'll talk about attendance, they'll talk about building, and they'll talk about cash. All right, attendance, how big is your church? How many people are coming on a Sunday morning? How big and new and fancy? How much square footage is your building? And how much do you have in the bank? How much comes in every single week? And, and while those are measures, those are things that we should count, God's not impressed by numbers. God's not impressed by the things that we're often impressed by. God looks at something else entirely. And going back to that podcast interview with Dr. Russell Moore, he talked about what really matters in the local church. What, what does it mean for us to be resilient, to be effective? And, and he suggested that instead of using attendance, building, and offering as, as a measuring stick for effectiveness, he said, what if we measured hospital visits instead? Is our community, are we visiting one another in our, in our most dire times of need? Are we there for one another when the bottom is dropped out? What if instead of measuring effectiveness by, by attendance and, and cash and building, we measured it by our visits to the homebound. Those that, that are a part of our Livingstone's church family, but they can't come on a Sunday morning for one reason or another. What if we started to count those things instead? What if we measured and we counted the meals that are cooked for those who are suffering, the, those who are struggling? What if we measured and counted the number of funerals that we attend for the people that are within our church family, that are within our body, that, that we are there for one another on those tough moments? What if we embrace the small ways that we can offer those who are rootless and restless and alone? What, what if we offer them a, a space and a sense of belonging? That those, those things, those, those simple acts, things like just praying for one another, it doesn't require any special training it doesn't require any, any special skills. Just being able to sit down with somebody who's going through a traumatic area in their life and just having coffee. Sending a, a, a text message or, or an email or a note just saying, hey, I'm thinking about you. Hey, I love you. What, what, what's going on in, in your world? It doesn't require anything other than us just showing up, that, than us being there, than us being present, than us knowing one another. That we are that vulnerable church that, that I talked about last Sunday. And that, that's my prayer for, for us as a, as a church body. As, in this new season that, that we are heading into, that we wouldn't be a church that's into the things that are big and flashy. 
That we wouldn't be a church that's seeking attention for ourselves or, or striving to be noticed. That we wouldn't be a church that's seeking to do good things just so we feel good about ourselves. But that we would be a church that does the simple things. The small things. The, the, the things that the church has been doing throughout the centuries. And that has caused this movement that started as, as a small handful of believers in the Near East that has taken over the world. And it was done not by, not by the big and the flashy. It was done by doing the small things. It was done by showing up, by being there, by being real, by being vulnerable, by being the hands and feet of Jesus to those around us. That, that's my prayer for us as a church. And so I, I want to, I'm, I'm going to conclude and pray here in just a moment, but, but even this afternoon as we're sitting down and we're having, we're having lunch together, I, I'd encourage you, hey, find somebody maybe you don't know. Find somebody that you don't know their story. Find somebody that maybe you've not recognized before. It doesn't mean you have to air all of, all of your dirty laundry, but just be real. Be vulnerable. Just, just be willing to put yourself out there. That we can be that church that does the small things that truly do change the world. So would you bow your heads and, and pray with me? Lord, I, I am so grateful for you, and I thank you, God, for being with us. I thank you, God, for your presence. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for the way, God, that you move in and through us, Lord, that, that there is no one size fits all, but God, that you've called us and you've asked us to do those small things and do them well, Lord, that you've asked us to, to be there for one another. You've asked us to stand in the gap. You've asked us to be vulnerable. You've asked us to be real. You've asked us to show up, to be there, to stand beside, to walk along. God, that, that's what we're, we've been called to do. We don't have to have a degree on the wall. We don't need to have special training. We just need to allow you to, to work in and through us. So God, I, I just want to thank you, God, for what you're doing. I want to thank you for the healing that, that, that has taken place within this body. I want to thank you for the, for the relationships and the, and the conversations. I want to thank you, God, for the way that you are orchestrating things, that you are working things out, that you are, are, are priming us and prepping us to be that church that, that we're, not, we're not looking backward, God. We're embracing what you have moving forward with us. And so, God, we walk in that today. And we thank you, God, so much for what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, Living Stones.